I burn like the way. Okay. You are listening to the Gusty Growth in the Fines Radio Hour. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. For you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. I'm going to push my dad and my brother. They're both very heavy, so... I would already found. Thank <laughs> you. This actually looks really cool. Got it? My daughter is graduating high school tomorrow. At dinner tonight, my youngest announced that he had his first loose tooth. These are things to celebrate, of course. But as I find myself north of 40, there's a deep sadness that sets in with every milestone. I'm increasingly aware of the impermanence of these moments. The joy of my daughter's adulthood is also the irrevocable loss of a child I spent years holding and carrying and being looked up to by. She will never be small again. She can stand up on her own. She can look me in the eye without craning her neck. I look at my littlest one fiddling with his loose tooth at the table. And all I can think about is how recently my daughter was his size or smaller. When he's her age, I will be old. He will likely loom over me. I rarely have the heart to say no to a bedtime story or to stop him from sleeping on my feet these days. Someone else put this in much more eloquently than I can, in a tweet I scrolled by in passing. I couldn't find it again for weeks, but the words haunted me. It was itself appropriately permanent. Finally, a friend found it for me, and I'm able to include it here. Parenting is standing on a grate while it rains diamonds. All these beautiful moments pouring over and around you, and you want to grab them and save them all, but you can't. You can barely catch a glimpse of their beauty before they're gone.
baby grows a tooth, then two, and four, and five, then she wants some meat directly from the bone. It's all over. She'll learn words. She'll fall in love with cretins, dolts, a sweet talker on his way to jail. And you, your wife, get old. Fly blown, rue nothing. You did, you loved. Your feet are sore. It's dusk. Your daughter's tall. given to him by early obedience to his parents. But it may be objected. And this is the third argument. We must never teach the child right and wrong and wrong and wrong. Because as Freud has told us, at the base of every child is the id. And over above the id is the superego, which is made up of moral taboos and conventions and religions and codes and so forth. And these, as they press down on the id, they're apt to develop a guilt complex. And we must be careful about ever telling the child that he has done wrong. I saw a cartoon the other day in the New Yorker in which the psychiatrist was saying to a mother, the child, stubborn, perverted, criminal tendencies, wild, addicted to thievery, a kleptomaniac, yes, but bad, no. So they're afraid of the guilt complex, and they might say if we, if we ever tell our child the difference between right and wrong, we'll have the highways of the United States ruined with psychoanalytic culture. Well, the difference between right and wrong has to be taught the child. He already has an instinct anyway for what is right. But this idea, assuming the child must never be taught the difference between right and wrong, is based upon the very false assumption that every instinct of the child is right and good. There is such a thing as right and wrong, a broken bone, for example, pains because the bone is not where it ought to be. The conscience can pain too because the conscience is not where it ought to be. 
I have your little letter from a little girl aged 10. Little Judy is her name. This girl must come from a fine family. I do not know them. But here's a child well trained. Dear Bishop, I would like you to help me solve a problem. I hate to admit it, but I have a guilty conscience. Holy immortal one. Have mercy on us and on the whole world. Holy God, holy mighty one. Holy immortal one. Have mercy on us and on the whole world. Holy God, holy mighty one. Holy immortal one. And mercy on us and on the whole world. Eternal God in whom mercy is endless. And the treasury of compassion is also look kindly upon us and increase your mercy in us so that in difficult moments not despair nor become despondent, but with great confidence submit ourselves to your holy will, which is love and mercy itself. Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, I trust in you. Our Lady Queen of Heaven, pray for us. Our Lady of Good Health, pray for us. Mother of love is something I felt I needed to earn, and a woman's respect is something I felt immediately owed. My dad died when I was nine years old. My mom was an addict. She remarried two years before to my stepdad, who was also an addict. My dad was an addict, too. One night, as the events of my dad's tumultuous life came to a head and threatened to cross the boundary he had made between it and I, he decided he would rather be dead than to have me come to know him as I grew up. He disconnected the phone lines in the house, he locked the bedroom door, and he tied off his arm for one final fatal dose of heroin. He was found the next day. He was my best friend. 
The value of a father's influence is immeasurable, proof of which is doubly found in his absence. A boy left fatherless is fated to aimlessly wander, to attack in all directions. With no standard set for what a man is and isn't, should and shouldn't, his personal visage of masculinity is forged from chaos. A girl left fatherless is doomed to search for him forever. There's no strong hand to guide her, to protect her, to raise her up, so she looks for it in other men. She's vulnerable, she's lost, just chum in the water. High pressure and low pressure joining into a storm. I see the world we live in as spiritually fatherless, and I'm not looking forward to the weather. See, I don't trust happiness. I never did, I never will. This is no weather radio station KVZ 40 broadcasting on the frequency of 162.45 megahertz. From Sandal Bank Mountain, New Jersey, New Hampshire. You are listening to 102 no weather radio station. We're sorry. All of our representatives are still assisting other customers. Please remain on the line as we value your call. So, once the shock wore off of, you know, my wife being pregnant and us having our first baby on the way, once that wore off, you know, we got to talking about it and we figured we'd uh, want a surprise. We wanted to have, we didn't want to find out what it was right away so we went through the pregnancy just not knowing if it was a boy or it was a girl and you know we played the game with everybody everybody guessed everyone had an opinion right that was annoying wasn't it baby everyone had an opinion oh it's gonna be a boy because the belly's hanging like this oh it's gonna be a girl because the belly's hanging like that and you know, whatever we you know we played along it was fun it was fine you know we came up with names for Boys, names for girls, just in case. We went through the whole nine months. It wasn't. It really wasn't that hard. I know some people couldn't go through that. But <laughs> yeah, we didn't know, baby. We didn't know if you were a boy or a girl. <laughs> we had no clue. So anyway, fast forward to the birth. You know, after a long and dramatic birth process, I won't get into the details. But yeah, baby, you put your mother through hell. With that, uh, with that delivery, you were worth it, though. You were worth it. Yeah. Uh, we got to the point where it was showtime, and you know, my wife's crowning, and we look, and first thing I saw was that baby had a full head of hair. And anyway, she pushed more and more and more came out. I started to see her little face. And, I'm cheering my wife on, clapping, cheering her on, telling her she's doing a great job. And inch by inch, this little baby comes out. And finally, the baby comes out. She's kind of turned, so I see her butt. And then I just see her big-ass feet. And her feet were so big, dude, I was... I couldn't really think about anything else. But, oh, my God, look at those big-ass feet. And, you know, the doctor took her... Threw her on my wife. My wife said hello, patted her on the back, patted her on the head, and uh, you know. Then they took her away to examine her. And my wife goes, "It's 
So what was it? I said, huh? She goes, was it a boy or a girl? And I said, well, shit, I didn't even look. <laughs> but did you see her feet, though? I couldn't look away from her feet. I totally forgot to even look. <laughs> so I had to walk over to where they were examining her. I took a look. It was funny. I was kind of shy to walk over to look at her. But uh, I, I, I'm never shy. I ended up, you know, slowly making my way over. And I looked, and sure as shit, she was a girl. So I had a girl. All of a sudden, I had a baby girl. A baby girl with some big-ass feet. <laughs> and a whole head of hair. So I was a girl dad. And, you know, I didn't think about it, of course. I didn't think of the implications of it or anything. Oh, what's wrong, sweetie? You want to play with the phone? I didn't think of the implications of it or anything. I kind of just... Would chill with her. Would look at her. Not even thinking anything, just looking at her just to look at her. It's just something I still do. This was my first punk show. Bikini Kill and a couple local bands. The club was run by a weird older guy named Charlie Critch, sort of a Peter Pan to the local Lost Boys. It's a familiar dynamic. It was my first real exposure to leftist politics, which in this case amounted to some college girls calling their dads secretly racist perverts on stage, suggesting that your dad and mine were probably the same. Their dads almost certainly bought their gear in hindsight. Mine drove me there. Bikini Kill itself didn't ultimately mean much to me, but they were a gateway into this scene where creepy old hippie benefactors and cool kid gatekeepers rewarded you for having contempt for your square families. The politics were much less coherent and top-down in those days. Skinheads, riot girls, vegan straight-edgers, anarchist crust-punks and skateboarders, they all coexisted in a soup of mad at dad. They streamlined the politics since then. It's now uniformly edgy Democrats. But it all got the job done and served the end all countercultures ultimately do, severing young people from their families. Kids from loving and perfect homes became outcasts and victims of their backward skin. If you squinted hard enough, that time your dad yelled at you kind of looked like Kathleen Hanna's musical fantasies of her Nazi rapist Republican dad. Your grandpa was racist. Threads were broken. I was about 12 or 13 years old when I fell under this spell. I spent the rest of my childhood avoiding my family and assembling a new makeshift one out of people who ultimately didn't regard me as much more than a potential source of scene clout. My descent into destructive behavior and nihilistic politics was egged on as a bit. The roaches scattered when there were serious consequences for my behavior. Excuses were found to disavow and I was written out of the plot like a soap opera character. The first time I went before a judge, no one was there on my behalf besides my square parents and my sad, confused old-world grandparents. The spell was broken when I attended my grandfather's wake in handcuffs. I drive by the club almost every day now. It's about five minutes from my house and has since become the world's most generic sports bar. I can't imagine this sits well with some of the old alumni who still mythologize revolution girl style now or whatever. I doubt it's great. But at least my old man could come inside now and have a beer and watch the socks instead of waiting outside in his car. 
I'm not going to draw too much of an explicit parallel to some things going on today that made me think of this. We all know who the new Peter Pans and Lost Boys are. I can't help but see it. The grievances are so similar. The sneering at your boomer dad who voted for Reagan. In the end, my grandfather won. I don't listen to Bikini Kill anymore, but I keep fresh flowers on his grave. The revolution amounted to this area being infested with neurotic Gen X Democrats, mostly childless. Angry about abortion rights and masks. A few of my fellow lost boys became that, aged poorly. Some became weekend dads with bands that covered the misfits every Halloween. Some stayed cordial until Trump happened, and then the woods from whence I came swallowed me whole and severed those lingering ties. The hard lesson learned for me really comes down to mortality. Life is short, youth even shorter. Nothing is of any lasting value that your grandparents or children couldn't carry with them as well. You can decide for yourself how or if any of this reflects on whichever wagon you pitch yourself to. I'm just some guy these days. It was a song you used to sing to me when I was little, I think. It was something about a dove. Mama says she never heard you sing it to me, but I think it went something about a... On the wings of a snow-white dove, he sends his something, something love. I don't remember that. I don't. Jesus went down to the waters that day. He was baptized in the usual way. When it was done, God blessed his song. He sent him his love on the wings of a dove, on the wings of snow white dove he sends his pure sweet love sign from above on the wings of a dove on the wings of a dove Okay, so, how long have you been my daughter? Uh, five and a half years. Five and a half years. And do you remember, what's your first memory of Dad? I said I don't even remember. You don't remember your first memory? Well, think of one memory. Maybe not your first, but, like, what's your favorite memory? Well, 
when I went on the bus ride with you. When you went on the bus ride? It was like so much fun. On the city bus? What did we do? We like just like sat there and we dived and dived to the carnival. And that's your favorite memory of Dad? Uh-huh. Why is it your favorite? We've done so many things, but the city bus ride is your favorite? It's actually not, well, it is kind of fun with me to be my dad, but it's actually not my favorite thing. Okay. It is, Dad, it's, it, it's, it's actually, it's actually the time when we were at Grammy and Grampy's house and, and we went canoeing. Uh, I do remember that. That where was did, like so much Where did we go canoeing? Over in the village pond and we went in like the stream, like little river over there. At the village pond? That's right. Uh -huh. <coughs> Do you remember what we found at the bottom of the pond? The swan. The swan, the plastic the swan, swan, right? Wasn't that crazy? We rescued Daddy, it. What's that? Why is the swan there? The swan is there to chase the geese away. Because the geese, the Canada geese, you know the Canada geese, they come and they poop on the beach. Ugh. Yeah, and so the swan is there to scare the geese away. But the geese are pretty hip to the fake swan because it's pretty fake, it doesn't move. And that one time it just sank to the bottom of the pond. And that's why we rescued it, right? We don't want the things to poop on the beach. We don't want the goose to poop on the beach, no. A is there a squirrel up there? It's kind of cold. Kind of fast. See it? I do. Is it making a nest? I think so. Daddy? Mm. What's that? Now can I tell my things to you? Hi, I'm Dr. Laura Schlossinger. Sometimes I am asked what is the most difficult call I've ever had. Well, it's not a specific call. It's a type of call. It's a call from a child. I get them every day, down to the age of five. Why? It used to be, since I've been on the radio for 32 years, it used to be they call, I don't like my forehead, my friend is mean to me, and things like that. Now it's... I never get to see my dad because he's shacking up at some woman who has kids and he has no time for me and she's mean to me. Or, my dad is drunk and he beats us. Or, or, or. I cannot believe that the growing culture of do what you feel like. Don't get married to have kids. Get married to have kids. Get married to somebody else have more kids. Get married to have kids. Divorce. Go shock up and have some more kids. What do you think this is doing to your children? Do you think it doesn't matter? I'm always amused in a negative sort of way when I get a call from a parent complaining about their child's behavior, like we had yesterday. Well, when did your child start lying, stealing, doing all of this acting out six years ago? Well, what happened six years ago? Well, um, I had serious issues. My husband was a drunk. There was a lot of nastiness and violence in the house, and we divorced, and then, excuse me? So we're putting the child in therapy when the child is simply reverberating from what the adults are doing, but the adults don't see that they have caused this pain. Let me tell you something. I hit my hand. There's a consequence. The hand hurts on the other side. You can't think that you can do this, and there is no impact, especially when it's a dependent, needy, innocent, 
vulnerable child on the other end. Be careful what you do. Your children are listening, they're learning, they're feeling, and they're reacting. And you owe them love to just do what you feel like doing. Now go do that. good about your dad potentially moving like right next door yeah that'd be really funny i did not expect that yeah man i kind of hope it happens yeah how come with his partner important. i like my dad <laughs> <laughs> he's a cool guy no i like your dad yeah <clears throat> Good ways and in bad, like <laughs> like everybody. Also very not always easy to do with. But yeah, like okay, your dad's gonna move. Your dad's potentially gonna move. Like, like around the corner. Mhm, mm mhm. Mm like a one minute walk. Yeah. Like it's literally around the corner. Yeah. If he does it, I don't know if he'll, his partner would like to move there. Uh, and she has the money. He has no money. <laughs> That's true. Your dad doesn't have money. <laughs> no. Your dad is thoroughly broke ass. Yep. Nice to see you more. I used to kind of actually not that that many years ago. I used to kind of wish you would migrate to another country, <laughs> so I would have to see you significantly less. Yeah, man, what changed? Um. Well, I think I tried to first of all stop looking for understanding, for for my dad's understanding, for, you know, things that really hurt me in the past, yeah. which I've tried to explain a million times to him when I was younger, and that worked uh, out well. <laughs> it made me just feel way more resentful and negative towards my dad. I think it was a long process be, really being able to do that. Just stop looking for this. Yeah, recognition of stuff that didn't go great. He just, because he can't. If something gets a little emotional, like his. It almost seems like his brain literally shuts off. Spaced out, his brain's just like these motherfuckers. <laughs> it's too much. 
don't know. I we talked a lot about parents and forgiveness, and you know how people just try their best, and sometimes that's not enough, or it's not working out. But that's all somebody has. At some point I was like, okay, maybe I should just... Because this was a t like a tension for a long time, right? Where my dad got really upset that I didn't want to see his partner. Uh, that's also why we often got into fights, because I tried to explain. And he didn't understand, and blah, blah, blah. That's what I this point of tension. But... I guess... I decided to be like, okay, whatever, I'll see her, you know, and I'm gonna really dislike it. And I probably, I didn't think I would get anything out of it. I was like, I'm gonna have to really take, you say, like, take the high road? I was like, I gotta really have to take the high road. I'm gonna do something that I really don't like, because I love my dad, and I will get nothing out of it. And it will just suck for me, but it's for my dad. And, well, that turned out not to be true. Yeah, it didn't suck at all, really. It didn't suck at all, make my relationship so much better with my dad. And he's also, even when things are a little, <clears throat> I don't know, interactions with his partner are a little stiff or uncomfortable, I can see, like, how happy it makes him. It really makes him really happy. It's really sweet. We had, last Christmas, we had dinner at my dad's and his partner for the first time since I was probably like 15. Something like that, 17 years ago or something. Yeah, yeah, more than half your life ago. Yeah. And he was so stoked. It was really sweet. <laughs> I thought it was gonna still be a big deal, but the burden was mostly gonna be on me and not my dad. But instead, it's like... It, yeah, it's just not a big deal anymore. Father, forgive me. Mistakes were made. I became a dad not knowing why I needed to, only that I did. It was one thing to be humbled in jail, attending my grandfather's awake alone and in handcuffs. 
When it was over, I went back to the safety of structural rules. It probably sounds funny to a normal person, but it was sort of a safety net. It was easy to be the smartest guy in the room there. I was still a special little boy, but I was bowling with bumpers. I lived in the continual chaos from that fateful day of the Bikini Kill show straight into adulthood, and I'd learned to find a certain comfort in the mandatory routine and structure of an institution. But I was barely a man when I went in, and still a very young man when I came out. Suddenly the world seemed very large, the choices overwhelming. Becoming a dad was, almost literally, a Hail Mary. I'd gone to the prison chapel after my grandfather died, practically drowning in shame, and begged for a way forward. A few years later, I was shacked up with the first girl I'd met in the drive-thru of my parole-mandated fast-food job. She didn't care where I'd been. She'd wanted kids. It felt like the answer. I don't know if I was a good dad, but I was better at it than anything else. Where I'd been lazy and shiftless in the past, I suddenly found the drive to wake up early and make breakfast for a little girl. The boy who couldn't hold a job for more than six months very quickly became a man of sorts and I found myself gladly working as many hours as they would give me to support her. I woke up early on my days off, let her drag my exhausted walking corpse around town. People who'd known me for years were stunned at how she consumed me. Saved me, really. The guy I least likely succeed beat the odds. I also did a lot of stupid things. I married someone I barely knew and quickly realized I didn't know how to get along with. We barely made ends meet, and the only trick up my sleeve was to work more. She saw us argue. She saw me use work to avoid home. She saw me look the other way out of guilt. She watched us fall apart. She saw me bounce from woman to woman as a single dad, and then remarry. I had more kids. I didn't ask her how she felt about it. I just tried to stay afloat. By the time I finally steadied myself, she was a teenager and in her own turmoil. Lockdowns came in her junior year. We were already barely speaking when things got ugly. Today I'm sitting in the bleachers of a high school auditorium in the sun, waiting through hours of names being called over an intercom so I can hear hers. She barely made it, but she did. She did better than her old man, three-time dropout. When it's over, we'll go to a chain restaurant. Tomorrow I'll take her out driving. And when she gets her license, I'll give her the 20-year-old car parked in my driveway. This is our last childhood moment together. Father, forgive me. Mistakes were made.
ones like you We should not exist In a world so sick But there you are Of the Swamp Yankee Radio Network. We now conclude all for that day.